You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. We're excited to start a new series this week, um, and this will kind of finish our calendar year. Um, so you know um, the Jewish holiday, the Jewish New Year is Rosh Hashanah, and that's when the Jewish calendar starts. The American calendar, of course, starts on January 1, but the Christian calendar starts on the first day of Advent, um, and we're only about six or seven, eight weeks away from that, and so this series will kind of take us up until that time, so we're looking forward to it. So we titled it Clear Mysteries. This kind of, um, the, the logo here or the graphic that you see um, is inspired by Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus says that we need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, uh, which is an interesting thing. Like, I'm not exactly sure how to do that. Like, I'm supposed to be like a snake and I'm supposed to be like a dove. <laughs> that's, that's maybe easier said than done. <laughs> and, and that idea, that kind of dual imagery has so much to do with the way in which Jesus teaches, and it has a lot to do with the way in which the Gospels teach us about Jesus. So not only is it, again, Jesus' own pedagogy, his own methodology, his own kind of teaching strategy, but then the Gospel writers seem to have mimicked that. They seem to talk about Jesus much the same way that Jesus himself will, will talk about the Gospel, or that the way in which he'll... He'll kind of talk about the kingdom. And so a clear mystery is itself a bit of um, oxymoron, right? Like plastic glasses or jumbo shrimp or civil war or Microsoft works. What are, any of those things that you imagine shouldn't go together and somebody else puts them together as if to say something. So, yeah, a mystery isn't clear. A mystery is an enigma, a mystery is unclear, it's opaque. But this is a clear mystery because while on the one hand things are concealed, they're concealed not for the ultimate purpose of always being concealed, but they're concealed in a temporary way so that they might at one point be revealed. Kind of concealing something makes it a little bit interesting. Like if I have a secret, you want to know it. And so if I tell you a secret, you feel like you have something and you might cherish it more. God wants us to kind of lean in. He wants us to search. He wants us to seek. Not everything is kind of just laid out for us like low-hanging fruit and then we easily pick it up because that doesn't require enough of us. You know, that we all know like when we have some skin in the game, things mean more to us. Like when we've paid a bit for it or when it has cost us something or when some effort has gone into it. Like all relationships work that way too. You meet someone, you, you seem to like them, you share something in common, you become an acquaintance. But to become a friend takes some time, it takes some energy, it takes some, it takes some effort on your part. Like sometimes when we talk about effort in Christian circles, it makes people feel uncomfortable. Right? You talk about effort, you talk about work. And they think, oh, that's works righteousness. Get away from me. I believe in grace. But as Dallas Willard, the spiritual writer and philosopher, has said, and often quoted here at Oasis, that uh, 
grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. I want to say that again. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So it's not that we earn anything, but it does mean that we do do things. And so this, this, this series is going to have a lot to do with that. It's kind of not an either or, but a both and. And we're going to talk about some clear mysteries. Even our call to worship today. I don't know how carefully you were listening or how easy it is to even hear a psalm and kind of take it, on it, take it in, right? Because it's so poetic. But when Caleb read that Psalm 19, it's like all of creation speaks. It has no words. Um, there's nothing to say, and its message goes forth to all the land. You keep using these words. I don't think they mean what you think they mean. What does it mean it speaks, but there are no words? Is it, is it, is it a sign language? Um, is it a mime? What is nature doing? Right? So yes, nature has its own, it has its own language. It has its own way of communicating. In my house... People are constantly, and by people I mean my family, are, are constantly trying to give voice to our pets, right? So the dogs don't say anything, but everybody in the family speaks for the dogs, right? So they're constantly talking about their, I don't know, their likes and their dislikes and their personalities and how they're kind of reading the room. And I don't know of all the kind of emotional trauma apparently my dogs have been through, but to, but to hear my family talk for them, and I often kind of tell them, hey, that's too much. You know, there's no way. You're, you're, you're projecting. You're telling me more about yourself than what's actually going on with this pet. But then I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that they don't, that they don't get it right. And so in, in, that, in that psalm, there's that whole kind of twist of things. And, of course, it moves from creation and nature and the environment to talking about the Torah, but then the Taurus is it kind of represents it as perhaps it's hard to understand, not easy to understand. And that the problem with understanding it is not in the Torah itself, but in our own fault and our own flaws. And so the psalmist says, help me, Lord. Right. Help me overcome those things. But then it ends in kind of a doxology. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I mean, that's a great benediction to a psalm. It's a great benediction to maybe any gathering, any kind of worship service. So we come to the passage that Justin read for us, the parable of the tenants, those who kind of rented out the field. And at least in Matthew's telling of the story, Matthew, um, this is a story during Passion Week. So Jesus has come in. He's come down the Mount of Olives. He's gone through, you know, the gate and... They've shouted Hosanna. He's gone into the temple and he's done his temple action. He's flipped over the tables and it's caused this big ruckus. And so now it's, the, it's in the days uh, shortly thereafter. And he's staying, in, he's staying in Jerusalem. And Matthew includes three parables in a row. And this is the middle one. The first parable, it says, is basically just a parable of two sons. And a father asked the two sons, hey, I need you in the field today. I need you in the vineyard, he, uh, the text says. And this is a story also about a vineyard. I need you in the vineyard. And the, and the one son says, oh, 
I'll be there. Or no, excuse me. The first son says, I can't make it, Dad. Um, don't, don't count on me. But then later, he changes his mind and he shows up to work. But the other son says, I can make it. I'll be there. But then he doesn't come. And so Jesus asks the question, which son has done better? Right? Is it based on what we say or is it based on what we do? And in this case, obviously, the better son is the one who worked. Even though he said he couldn't, he actually did, which is better than saying you can and not actually doing it. Then we have this parable of the tenants. And then the parable that comes after this is the parable of a wedding feast. And we won't say much about that today because we're going to focus on that next week. That's the gospel passage for next week, and that'll be our sermon. But here, in this parable of, of the vineyard, the parable of the tenants, um, it opens up, and the person, one person kind of buys a field, he works the field, he plants the grapes, he, he digs the trenches, he digs the well, he builds a watchtower, like all the work has been done by the owner of the field. All of that takes place in like verse 1. right? This is like the, the opening of the story. And then it says, then he kind of rents it out to a group of people. And then, of course, they're supposed to pay rent. But they don't pay rent monetarily. They pay rent by, as they harvest the grapes, some of those grapes kind of go back to the field owner. Except when it's time to pay rent, they don't pay. And so time and time and time again, the guy who owns the field kind of sends a messenger and says, hey, it's time to pay rent. And sometimes they beat them up, the messengers, and sometimes they stone them. Sometimes they kill them. Not so good. And this happens again and again and again till finally... The guy who owns the field says, well, I'm going to send my son because they've been ignoring my other messengers, my servants, but they won't ignore my son. They'll realize this is the field owner's son and they'll, they'll do better. And so he sends his son and the, guy, and the folks who have rented the field are like, aha, this is the heir. This, this is the one that's going to inherit the field. You know, if something happens to him... There won't be anybody to pay in the future. There won't be anybody to pay rent to. So they take the son and they kill him. And so Jesus asked, what is the guy who owns the field going to do? Now, Mark tells a very similar story. But, but in Mark's version of the story, Jesus doesn't ask them what will happen. Jesus just kind of tells them. But here, it's the listeners, right? And they say, well, the guy who owns the field, he's going to come and he's going to do some violence. He's going to take the, the field away from them. He's going to do away with those people and he's going to give the field to someone else who will be willing to take care of it and to kind of, you know, pay rent and pay the, pay the, the grapes. And Jesus says, yeah. And he quotes a different psalm, Psalm 118. And he says, the stone that is rejected. Have you not read about this story where the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone? And the, the Jewish leadership realizes, the, the, the priest and the, 
And the Pharisees realize that this is a lesson about them. And so they kind of seek to kill Jesus. Now, what do you do with a story like that? On, on the one hand, this might actually be a clear mystery. <laughs> like, this might be a straightforward telling of the story. But I think there are things in it that we should pick up on. The first is that the field owner is the one who's doing all the work. Right? The field owner is the one who's bought the field. The, the field has prepared the soil. The field owner has planted the field. The field owner has built the watchtower. Like All the work is on the field owner. So if the field owner is God, then God has done all the work. There's, there's not a whole lot for us to do in this story, right? except the harvest and, of course, kind of pay, paying rent. The, those who have rented the field are typically understood as Israel. Like Israel has been kind of given this promise. And now those messengers or those servants who have kind of come from the field owner represent the prophets. The prophets are constantly coming to Israel, calling on Israel to repent, kind of change from their ways and to kind of follow God. And the prophets, of course, are not well received. Um, The prophets are rejected. Uh, Some of the prophets are killed. And so finally, right, the same way the field owner sends his son, God the Father has now sent Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's being rejected. He's like the stone that was set aside and we're like, we're not going to use that stone. But God takes the stone that was rejected and as we just sang the song Cornerstone, he becomes, right, the stone, the foundation stone on which the kingdom will now be built. But I want to, I want to be careful here. Like when this text is read, people often jump to the idea that the promise was for the Jews And they kind of missed it. And so now it's kind of being given to the Gentiles. I do believe in a lot of ways there there is a story, part of the story here to be told today is the inclusion of the Gentiles. And as a Gentile, I'm happy about that, (laughs) right? I'm happy that the the good news of the kingdom of God is not only for Israel because I'm, I'm not of Israel. But before we make that move... I think we need to be careful because this is not kind of replacing the Jews. In fact, it's not even a movement away from the Jews. Everyone who's um, receiving Jesus at this time are Jewish people, right? The ones who are, are being uh, reprimanded or being rejected is the religious, and in particular, the religious leaders. So... <laughs> As I stand here today, this might be more kind of a warning for me, maybe even more for me than it is for you. Because the point is, is if you stand in kind of religious leadership, you need to be careful not to think that it's about you and somehow your way of doing things is more important than what God is doing. Because God can take it away from you and give it to others. But the others that he's giving it to is, is the Galileans, right? Is the fishermen, is the carpenters, is the farmers. 
of whom they at that time, the followers of Jesus, were all Jewish. So we don't, we don't want to make that move too quickly. But just to say that Jesus is offering us a new way of being, and it's a way that's different than what they had done. It is a step away from the exclusivity of the temple. It's a step away from even the exclusivity of the faith, that it's like it's for us. We often tell the story, I think, wrong. We talk about salvation as though God is saving us from the world. But God is not saving us from the world. God is saving us from sin and death. He is saving us for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we are not at odds with the world. The world is, the, is what God has loved and died for. And when God saves us from sin and death, that's so that we can be light and salt for the world. That's very important. Because to become a part of God's people is to become a part of God's messengers to others. Right? To be included amongst the chosen or the elect is not just to be saved yourself. And isn't that great? Unlike those poor you know, losers over there who weren't chosen. But rather to be part of that group is to be part of that group that then carries that message and kind of moves you know, forward. It's a funny thing. When Jesus first spoke in parables, uh, the disciples kind of asked him, why do you speak in parables? And he says, because I'm trying to conceal something. Which seems almost, it's like itself. Is that a parable? <laughs> Did Jesus just use a parable to answer the question, why do you speak in parables? I speak in parables in order to conceal. Like, I'm pretty sure I've always thought that that's the exactly opposite. <laughs> that not only did Jesus not speak in parables to conceal, but that he spoke in parables to reveal. Like, they're object lessons that you're supposed to easily understand them. But <clears throat> I'm going to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, which, of course, you never should do. But I didn't write it down, so I'm not going to get it exactly right. But he says that um, we know words, but we don't know silence. He says we know words, but we don't know the word. And we know life or have life, but we don't have the life. And that because of that, we've been willing to give up wisdom for knowledge. And we've been willing to give up knowledge for information. And I think that's what's happening here. Um, Emily Dickinson in a poem says tell the truth or always speak the truth but tell it slant <laughs> let's see I do want to get this one right um, tell the truth excuse me Emily Dickinson tell all the truth but tell it slant success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight the truth superb surprise a lightning to the children ease with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Tell it slant. The truth must dazzle gradually 
or every man be blind. Here's the point. We have a hard time hearing the truth. And if we just speak the truth and, or we think that we can just tell facts and people will, you know, from those facts receive the truth, we're, we're, we're missing it. Like we're no, we don't understand how it works. It is not easy to hear the truth even about ourselves. Someone will tell us, you know, hey, you do this. I'm like, I don't do that. Or they say, hey, when you, when you acted that way, it was like this. No, it's not. That's not true. Right? We can't hear it. And so Emily Dickinson tells us we've got to tell it at a slant, right? And the truth needs to dazzle gradually. Because if the truth comes at us, it kind of blinds us. It's more than we can see. And so Jesus, who is the truth, tells us the truth, but he tells us the truth in ways that come at us a bit sideways, that require us to kind of ask again, what, what is that? What does that mean? What is that like? If I said to you all, hey, I'm having second thoughts, I had I'd made a decision, but now I'm having some second thoughts. What does that mean? Yeah, you got to speak up. It's not rhetorical. What does having second thoughts mean? It means I'm not sure. It means I'm doubting, right? Which what a horrible, what a horrible phrase to say that to have second thoughts is to doubt. Let me let me give you another way to imagine the phrase second thoughts. To have a first thought. And to have a second thought is called thinking. (laughs) And that's good. Having additional thoughts is going to take us beyond the simple what we thought it meant. And might bring us a little deeper, a little truer, a little richer, right, into a reality. And I think that's exactly what poetry can do. It's exactly what Jesus can do. And he often uses parables to do it. And what's fascinating is sometimes now when the Gospels talk about Jesus, they'll do the same thing. They'll present it in ways like that psalmist says, nature kind of speaks every morning. And it does so with using no words. (laughs) Reminds me of a statement of St. Francis of Assisi who would say, preach at all times, and if necessary, use words. Because our, our actions and our body language and our realities are, are more than just text on a page. And they're more than just words that are spoken. Like the parable that precedes this parable about the vineyard, about the two sons, right? It's not just what you say. It's also what you do. And again, it's not that doing here is somehow earning, but there is an expectation that there's participation, that it does kind of require effort, that it is a life that is lived. And so maybe this seems a little mysterious, and if it does, that's okay. Because that should be an invitation for you to lean in, to to ask more questions. Augustine used to say to his congregation, uh, why are you frustrated that you don't understand what I'm talking about? Because if you understood it, it would not be God. 
God's not reducible to, to some kind of utility that you can just use. Uh, Augustine would also talk about this, the concept that some things are useful and some things are enjoyable. And one of our biggest challenges is getting those things switched. We take things that are enjoyable and we try to make them useful. We take things useful and try to make them enjoyable. And he says we've got to be very careful not to do that. And God's not useful. The Westminster Catechism, any of you grow up Presbyterian? None of you? Well, okay. Um, I didn't either. But um, I did go to Presbyterian College. (laughs) And so I I, I memorized the Westminster Catechism, all 114 questions and answers. So that's, it's quite, I know, it was a commitment. I mean, I I did get a scholarship for it, but in any case. The first question... And answer is this. What is the chief end of a human? Like what's the primary purpose of a human being? And the answer is to love God and to enjoy God forever. Like that's what humans are for. Humans are for loving God and enjoying God forever. And, and this is why sometimes I think in Christianity we get confused that this is some kind of self-help program. That Jesus died on the cross so that you could, I don't know, make some more money or have some more stuff or perhaps sin a little less. That's a big price to pay for that. Jesus doesn't die on a cross to just manage sin. Quote Dallas Willard again, In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, his second chapter is called The Gospel of Sin Management. The gospel of sin management is no gospel at all. Because we can end up substituting holiness, being like Christ, for moralism. And there's something much truer and much richer that's not reducible to some kind of list of do's or don'ts that calls us to a way of being that prepares us to to be Christ in the moment, to to meet needs, to to be present. And it's why we come to the table every week. It's why we receive his love and his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. Not just so we can benefit from it, but so we might be transformed by it. So that we can then be that for our families, for our neighbors, for our co-workers, for our friends. And maybe, most importantly, for strangers. The stranger and the friend are two of the most reoccurring characters in Jesus' stories. And so as we make our way through the series, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at strangers, and we'll be looking at friends, and we'll be talking about these things. But for today, I want to end with this thought. I don't know if you've been watching the news much this week. But the conflict in Israel between the Israelis and the Palestinians really took a turn for the worse. And when we read texts like this that talk about a vineyard being prepared and and rented to one people group and then taken from that people group and given to another, it might sound like we're kind of done with Israel, with the Jews, now we're moving on to the kingdom. 
And, I, and again, I want us to be very careful not to say that. Additionally, not, not as a, uh, a contradiction to that, but as a corollary to it, I also want to say that the Palestinian people are the people of whom the kingdom is also given to. And that despite what nations do and presidents and prime ministers and generals do, people are just people. They, they have kids. They, they have jobs. They have homes that they need to live in. And so as we pray, we need to pray for peace. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for the peace of Gaza. Pray that true peace will come. Not just the absence of conflict, but the very presence of love. To quote Dr. King, that true peace is not the absence of a negative force, it's the presence of a positive one. We're not just looking for peace and quiet, we're hoping for peace and justice. And we pray for that peace and we long for that peace and we should carry that burden that we have it in ways that others don't. And we should be aware of it. A story like this, one of the things it should do, and one of the ways we should understand these parables, is not just what does this mean, but what does reading a story like this do? What does it do to me? How does it shape me? How does it form me? What kind of a person do I become having read it? And hopefully, having read the parable of the vineyard and of the tenants, we can become a more caring and more kind people whose hearts are broken for those who get things wrong, for those who have and things are taken away. And so we weep tears. It cleanses our hearts and it speaks to God. And so we pray for peace. We pray for peace for Israelis and Palestinians. We pray for the peace of Ukraine. Again, a true peace. Not just a peace and quiet, but a peace and justice. May the Prince of all peace calm all storms. The storms, the big storms, the wars out there in the world. But also those internal storms that keep us awake at night. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.